Please open your Bible or the Pew Bible up to Amos chapter 1. Amos chapter 1. We're going to be looking at chapter 1, verse 3, through chapter 2, verse 3. I must confess that there were times this week when I started to wonder if maybe I was crazy to try and preach through Amos this summer. Uh, maybe it is a task better suited for a more experienced minister than myself. Uh, even this morning on the way to church at the intersection of King Tut and Old Guide, I pulled out my notes and crossed off a paragraph and wrote some margin notes, which is unusual for me. Uh, and yet, my firm conviction is that all of Scripture is God's Word, that it is God-breathed, and that it is uh, suitable for building us up, for rebuking us, for correcting us. And so that is why, uh, as I read this, it's admittedly a difficult passage. It's a heavy passage, but as I read it and you're wondering, why in the world are we working on this passage? That's why. It's God's Word. I'm going to read uh, Amos 1, beginning at verse 3 and through 2, verse 3. Uh, maybe I should remind you, verse uh, 2 that we looked at last week, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And then beginning in verse 3, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden. And the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. And I will turn my hand upon, against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of blood. So I will send a, tire, a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Teman, and it shall devour the stronghold of Basra. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour her, the strongholds of Kiriath, and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst, and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. This is God's word. 
Last week, uh, we looked at Amos 1-2. And it, remember, it's the introduction to the whole book. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The shepherd's pastures dry up and the top of Carmel withers. That's the heading for the whole book, and it's echoed again in 3, verse 8. The lion has roared, who will not fear? And in between, in chapters 1 and 2, we hear the initial content of the roar of the Lord. We hear what he's roaring about. In these initial chapters, we have eight short prophecies that run from 1-3 all the way to 2-16. We're going to look at six prophecies this week against six cities or, or countries, and two next week. The six we're looking at this week target the countries surrounding Israel and Judah and charge them with what we would call crimes against humanity, war crimes. The context for each seems to be in various wars and skirmishes. Notice each charge concerns ways of mistreating other people. And they're linked together by this common structure that's repeated for three transgressions and for four this initial, thus says the Lord, this uh, repeated, I will send a fire. It's linked together. They're all of the same kind. This is a heavy passage. Indeed, Amos is a heavy book. But as we consider this passage, we learn something about the God who roars and his values. I have to confess a, a, a bit of artificiality in trying to organize the material this morning. Uh, I settled on two big ideas, two points, two truths. The first is that God roars over all the earth. The second is that God roars against cruelty. The first truth, God roars over all the earth. God roars over all the earth. God's roar is comprehensive. Every nation is included. This series of prophecies, it forms a circle. Picture Amos preaching at Bethel, the northern temple, or maybe he's in Samaria, the northern capital. As he preaches first in 1, 3 through 5, he points towards Damascus in the northeast, and he prophesies against it. Then in 1, 6 through 8, he gestures over his shoulder towards Gaza in the southwest and prophesies against it. Next, he turns to Tyre in the northwest in 1, 9 through 10. And then in 1, 11 to 12, it's Edom in the southeast. Do you see what he's done? He's painted an X with Israel in the dead center. Then in 1, 13 through 15, and 2, 1 through 3, Amos closes the circle prophesying against Ammon and Moab in the east between Edom and Damascus, his starting point. He crisscrosses roundabout, condemning all the surrounding nations. Each of these countries had their own king, they had their own sets of laws, their own customs. They had their own gods. They had their own religious ceremonies. But they aren't condemned for following other gods. They aren't condemned here for practicing idolatry. What are they condemned for? Amos says that when they are mistreating other people, they are rebelling against God's own authority. Each nation is held accountable for acting inhumanely towards fellow humans. God's roar is comprehensive. He holds accountable all people in all nations. Moab can't say, well, we didn't know. We're not part of Israel, God's people. Tyre can't say, we never heard the words of the covenant. How did we know? 
God says all people should know by their conscience how to rightly treat their neighbors. God's roar is comprehensive. It, it holds all nations accountable. It's comprehensive also because God cares about all sorts of victims. God hears the cries of his people. That's what he says that, uh, to Moses in Exodus 3 that we read this morning. I've heard the cries of my people. And Gilead, uh, the victims in 1.3 and 1.13, is part of Israel, part of God's people. He hears the cries of his people here. But in the other prophecies here, the identity of the victims is unspecified, in part because it's irrelevant. Every person from every nation and ethnicity bears God's image. And so it is horrifying when any person is sold into slavery or tortured or murdered. God cares about all sorts of victims, regarding, regardless of their class and nationality and gender. And so he holds the perpetrators accountable. Remarkably, in 2.2 in there, that prophecy against Moab, Edom, who bought slaves from Gaza and Tyre, Edom, who pursued his brother with the sword, Edom is also a victim of violence. It says, Moab, you're going to be punished because you burned the bones of the king of Edom. God cares even about victims who are in other situations the aggressors. All people, even the king of the Edomite slavers, are made in God's image. Friend, perhaps you have been the victim of violence or horrible crimes. Maybe you think no one even knows what has happened to you or cares what has been done to you. And if that's you, if, if, if you're in those shoes this morning, hear God's word from Amos. God cares about all sorts of victims, even you. God cares. Finally, God's roar is comprehensive. It reaches over all the earth, and we see all sorts of people are punished. In these prophecies we've just read, leaders, princes, kings are all held accountable. But also the people who benefit from these cruel practices are equally culpable. The king can't escape God's roar by virtue of his high position, but neither can a commoner avoid responsibility by claiming it was someone else's responsibility. It says uh, in, in verse 5, He who holds the scepter and the people of Syria shall go into exile. Okay, from the king at the top to the people at the bottom, they're all held accountable. Likewise, we can't escape God's righteous roar either by having a high position in society, nor can we shift responsibility for our actions onto the system, as it were, or someone else who gives the orders. God holds all people accountable for their actions. God's roar, God roars over all the earth, and his roar is just. In each of these short prophecies, the punishment fits the crime. These various nations practice violence. They sell people into exile, and they themselves are threatened with exile, destruction, and death. The very things that these nations do will come back on their own heads. In these punishments, we see uh, what one Old Testament scholar, Alec Matir, calls the boomerang effect of sin. The crime that we do, the sins that we commit, comes back like a boomerang onto our own heads. Take Edom as an example. 
I've already mentioned this, but in the second and third prophecy, Edom is the one that slaves are sold to. They're buying up slaves. In the fourth prophecy, Edom is judged for lack of mercy. Verse 11, uh, he pursued his brother with the sword. He cast off all pity. But then in the sixth, uh, but then uh, Edom itself in verse 12, so I will send a fire upon them and devour the strongholds of Basra. They've been the aggressor. They've been buying slaves. They've been attacking their brother with the sword. And now they too will be subject to violence. And so God's roar is just. The punishment fits the crime. God roars all over all the earth. This roar is comprehensive and just, but it is also a patient roar, if I can use that language. I'm not sure that quite makes sense. Uh, the, but God is patient with these people. Each of these prophecies begins with this formula. For three crimes of this or that city, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. But then each prophecy specifies one specific event, one specific transgression that the nation is being judged for. So what's that for three, for four about? It's saying this is the last straw. This isn't like one wrong thing they did and I'm going to destroy them. This is uh, the last in a series. For three and for four, they've done, this is characteristic. They've been doing these sorts of things for an ongoing period of time. This is the last straw. They will be punished. Some of the war crimes that Amos describes in this chapter seem to be recent. But in other cases, he seems to be addressing long-standing crimes. For example, Israel had an on-again, off-again conflict with Damascus, the first city targeted, for nearly 300 years. And yet God is saying through Amos, I haven't forgotten about these things that were done. Excuse me. And the punishment that's threatened is not immediate either. As best as we can tell, Amos is preaching somewhere around 760 A.D. At a time when Assyria, the world power of the day, is in recession. Uh, it's basically uh, out of all of the area around Israel. But we know both from the account in 2 Kings and from archaeological evidence that over the next 40 years, from the time that Amos preached, 760 up to 722, and actually even into the, into the 7th century, Assyria returns to power and invades the whole region around Israel, and Israel as well. And then in the next century, Babylon replaces Assyria as the world superpower and again invades this whole region around Israel. And then, if you keep going down, then Persia comes through, and then Alexander the Great comes through, and then the Romans come through. Uh, the nations that Amos prophesies against experience the threat and violence. It's not immediate. After all, if we did something wrong and were immediately like that punished by God, who would ever do something wrong? Uh, but for that matter, who could stand? Who would live if our sins were immediately led to our death? God's roar over all the earth is patient, not immediate what Alec Matir calls a patient moral providence. But here we must be careful. Amos, the prophet, declares ahead of time that a punishment is coming. But this doesn't mean that there's a one-to-one -one cause and effect relationship between every disaster and every sin. That is to say, uh, not every hurricane or tsunami is sent by God as a punishment. Sometimes volcanoes erupt because that's what volcanoes do. So we can't read off every natural disaster that somehow we know what God's doing. Rather, God sent Amos beforehand to say this is coming 
as a punishment. Nor does this patient moral providence always work out in the world. If you look at the prophecy against Ammon in 114, uh, perhaps the most horrific of all these crimes, it threatens punishment on the day of battle and the day of the whirlwind. As we continue our study of Amos, we're going to see that this day that's coming, the day of the Lord, is a prominent theme. In fact, the minor prophets, Hosea through Malachi, this whole section of scripture, the day of the Lord is the major theme of that whole section. It teaches God's people to anticipate this coming day, to look forward in hope to this day, trusting that there would be a final definitive day when God's justice would put the world right again. Now, if you drive out Highway 20 on vacation and you're looking at the mountains, sometimes you're looking at something and you think two peaks are part of the same mountain. And then as you get closer into the mountains, you realize actually these peaks are separated by several valleys, that they're farther apart than it looked like from a distance. And Amos' perspective is like that. The prophet's perspective is like that. They look ahead to this day of the Lord, and yet as we get closer, we realize that we're living in this valley between two peaks between Christ's first coming, when he was born of the Virgin Mary, and his second coming, when he will return to judge the living and the dead. We'll see in a few weeks that in Amos 8, 9 to 10, Amos proclaims, On that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And then some 800 years later, at the Passover feast, Mark records in Mark 15 that when the sixth hour had come, that is noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What Mark's describing is the day of the Lord. It is the day when God comes and begins to put things right. But we see from our perspective that there's still another peak, that Christ will return again to put right every wrong. And so although God, there is a patient moral providence at work in the world, Although we can talk about a boomerang effect of sin, people do wrong and it comes back on them. Ultimate, true, final justice, everyone getting what they deserve, finally will only come at the final judgment. The truth is some people get away with it in this life. Some people do wrong and are never caught in this life. But there is a final accounting. The second truth in this passage is that God roars against cruelty. God roars against cruelty. We've seen that his roar goes over all the earth. It's comprehensive. It's just. It's patient. But now we're seeing what God roars against. Why is he roaring? He roars against cruelty. In these chapters, Amos addresses eight nations that can be grouped in, prayer, in pairs, rather, this week we're looking at these first three pairs. And in these pairs, we see God's values in what he condemns. He's condemning things that he rejects. 
and by that we can see what he holds up. Now, these war crimes, these crimes against humanity are so heinous that it's easy to look down our nose and say how wicked these people are that Amos is condemning. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, the 20th century German Lutheran pastor and, uh, and scholar, said that the real challenge for the church, though, is to read the Bible against ourselves. That is to say, we shouldn't read Amos's prophecy looking down our nose at how wicked Damascus and Edom and the Ammonites are, but we need to read it recognizing that in our hearts, we have the same attitudes, the same roots, that if we let them grow up, would bear these same fruit, these same awful, atrocious things that these nations are doing. Uh, let's look at these pairs and you'll see what I mean. In the first pair, we see that God values people over things. God values people over things. In, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, God roars against the cruelty of Damascus and Gaza, who both treat people as if they were things. Damascus is accused of threshing people. Typically, grain is threshed by pulling a wooden board that's studded with iron or maybe has iron bounds around it across grain, and it separates the grain and the chaff. Amos uses threshing as a metaphor for Damascus' cruelty, saying it's as if they threshed a people. But he's also making the point here that Damascus is treating people as if they were things, treating people like grain to be threshed. They're treating people made in God's image as merely things. Likewise, Gaza in verses three through, uh, uh, sorry, verses six through eight, is accused of selling a whole people into exile. It's not unusual in the ancient world for enemy soldiers to be captured in war and taken as slaves, but here Amos says that Gaza and the Philistines went beyond that. In their cruelty, they sold a whole people, women, children, old and young along with the soldiers. So Gaza, too, is judged for turning people into commodities to be traded, for selling people as objects. It seems to me that we must hear God's roar against the cruelty of treating people as things at two levels. Stick with me here for a minute, at two levels. I could hardly speak of God holding nations accountable for their historic crimes of selling people as slaves without addressing our own national history in this area. We too are a country that at times sold people as slaves. Of course, this is a complex issue. Our national history is complex. Our national history includes both slave traders and abolitionists, people who fought for slavery and fought against slavery. It's all part of our history. And it's very complex, so I don't want to get into U.S. history and give you the definitive telling of that. I'm going to stick to what Amos is saying, what Amos makes clear. He makes it clear first that to sell a person is to treat a person as a thing rather than as a bearer of God's image. And therefore, to sell a person is abhorrent to God. People are not things to be sold. Second, Amos says that those who hold the scepter, kings, princes, leaders, and the peoples of these various nations are all held accountable for their actions. In some sense that we can't fully unpack this morning, God holds both individuals and the larger groups that they belong to accountable for their actions, past and present. Third, if we understand what we believe as Christians, here's moving out of Amos for just a moment, or at least this passage, Amos, Amos holds out this hope later, but 
If we understand what we believe as Christians, that we're saved by God's grace and we're justified before him by Christ's work and not by our own good deeds, then we can acknowledge our own sin individually and nationally. We need not be defensive, but can readily acknowledge past and present failings of our country and appeal to God's grace. Okay? But at a more personal level, we hear this roar at a second level, a more personal level. Now, you and I may not be actively involved in threshing people or selling them, but we do treat people as things. When we call customer support or tech support, and we get someone from another country who we can't really understand their accent and they can't answer our question, we're faced with a challenge. Am I going to treat the person on the other end of the phone as a person made in God's image, even if they don't have the answer I need? Or are we going to treat them as a thing, as a cog in a machine, and let them have a piece of our mind? Are they someone that I can yell, is this a thing that I can yell and shout at, or is it a person made in God's image? When we interact with a waiter or barista or cashier or flight attendant, we're continually faced with this basic question. Am I going to treat them as a person made in God's image or as a thing? God values people over things. And as God's people, we should reflect his values. We should be known for how we treat other people. That no matter what circumstance, even when they screw up our order at the restaurant or whatever it is, that we are always treating people as people not simply as things. Second, in the second pair, we see that God values faithfulness over pragmatism. Tyre, in verse 9, is charged with selling a whole people to Edom. And then in verse 11, Edom is charged with pursue, for pursuing with the sword. But both these nations' crimes are linked together as being crimes against their brothers. See in 1.9, it says, Tyre did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. And 111 says, Edom pursued his brother with the sword. Uh, Tyre had allies that, that it should have been faithful to, that it should have shown loyalty to. But instead, apparently, Tyre made a quick buck by selling out their allies as slaves. We do the same thing when, in contemporary society when companies lay off employees and relocate to areas with cheaper labor. We say it's nothing personal, it's just business. But it's the same sort of thing. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, sorry, I forgot how I'm labeling this. It's showing, faith, or it's showing pragmatism above faithfulness. It's not being loyal to your employees. Instead, it's making a quick buck. In God's eyes, there are things that matter more than the bottom line. A company has an obligation to be faithful to its employees. Edom should have showed pity to his brother, but instead held on to anger, we're told in verse 11, and wrath. Edom should have showed mercy, but instead sought revenge. Likewise, we should show loyalty and mercy to our family, to our brothers, to those we have obligations toward, but instead we show anger. Like Edom, we can hang on to our wrath. We hang on to offenses and insults and slights. We let them build up into resentment. Many families and marriages are destroyed by harboring anger and resentment. Like an engine that needs to be flushed out, relationships get filled with gunk if we hold on to our anger. And just like we decide it's easier to get a new car than deal with an engine that needs flushed out, so people decide it's easier just to quit talking to their brother or sister. It's easier to get divorced and start over 
than to deal with layers of resentment that have been built up. But God values faithfulness over pragmatism, over the easy route. And so the question that confronts us is, will we share his values? Will we be faithful to our family and to our commitments? Or will we take the easy way? Will we harbor anger? Or will we show mercy? Third, we see in verse uh, 13 through 2-3, Ammon and Moab, that God values the weak over wealth. God values the weak over wealth. The last pair of nations, Ammon and Moab, seem to be a bit of an odd couple. Ammon's crimes uh, described in verse 13 are horrific, and all the more so because the motive is so banal. Amos says they do this simply to enlarge their borders. But in comparison to Amon's horrific crimes, Moab's crime of burning the king of Edom's bones seems rather minor. But there is a link between these two. In both cases, both Amon and Moab target defenseless victims. Pregnant women, the unborn, and the buried dead have no way to defend themselves, to protect themselves from unchecked cruelty and aggression. Moab burns the king of Edom's bones to lime, and lime was used for plastering houses. So callously, they desecrate this king's tomb, and his body is used for home renovation. They're treating a person as a thing, uh, using a body for building material. But it also just seems to be cruelty for cruelty's sake. There's easier ways to make lime than raiding a king's tomb. It's needless wanton cruelty. And Amon commits horrible acts of violence simply to get a bit more land. Our modern period is full of, of, of examples of exactly the same kinds of atrocities against the weak and vulnerable that Amon perpetrates. Um, you can think of all the atrocities of the 20th century against uh, pregnant women, unborn children, and so forth. And yet, again, those are all awful. God condemns them. And yet I want us to see that we have the same root in our hearts, the same root to prefer wealth over the weak. Think about in social situations. Uh, maybe you work at a sort of job where you have uh, uh, potential for promotion, and yet if you're seen talking to the socially awkward too often, you'll kind of get labeled with them. Or at school, maybe if you eat at the wrong table too often, you're going to get labeled as one of the weird kids. And so you uh, prefer a good name, you prefer to be thought well of, to caring for the weak. I know I've seen this even at um, academic conferences, that people all want to talk to the big name people so they can look good by talking to people who are well known. And yet there's people that are standing in the corners that no one wants to talk to because they don't have any uh, cachet in, in those sorts of social situations. And so we need to recognize that we have the same attitudes. Um, we have the same attitudes that can lead to even uh, things as horrific as Ammon and Moab's crimes, if we prefer wealth, a good name, good standing, to caring for the weak. If God values the weak over the wealthy or over wealth, then we who are committed to reflecting God's values should speak up for the weak. For those who can't speak for themselves, we should be on guard against exploitation of the weak for the sake of wealth. We hear this morning in Amos God's roar over all the earth. It's comprehensive. It extends to all nations, to all people. It's just. God is patient, but he will ultimately 
on the final day of the Lord hold us all accountable for mistreating others. For mistreating others, for acting in inhuman ways towards others. We may not have committed the war crimes that Amos describes, but we're guilty of the same attitudes and behaviors that ultimately lead to these gross injustices. We too treat people as things. We're pragmatic about our commitments. We harbor anger and don't show mercy or pity. We put our own wealth above the needs of the weak. We have the same attitudes. And as we've seen, God holds us accountable as individuals, but also as groups and even as nations for how we treat others. What is our hope then? Friends, there will be a day of the Lord, a day when God's just roar is heard throughout all the earth. How will we stand on that day then? Amos paints a picture of inhumanity, of treating people in, as things in an inhuman way, not as made in God's image. But in his picture of inhumanity, we see a portrait of true humanity. The nations of Amos' day are the opposite of Christ. It's the mirror image, the very opposite of Christ. And so Amos then, by contrast, points us to our true and only hope. We see in Jesus Christ a man who values people over things, who treats every single person who comes to him, women, foreigners, children, sinners, people that mar his reputation, every single person who comes to him, he treats as an image bearer. He treats them personally as a person and loves them. Jesus is faithful to his commitments. He's loyal to his people, not only when it's inconvenient, but even when it costs him his own life to be loyal to his people. We see Jesus loving the weak and preferring the weak over wealth. After all, isn't that what we heard in Philippians 2? He was in the very form of God, but he condescended. He came down and took onto himself the form of a servant to help us, weak. Our only hope, then, is that on the day of the Lord, we are found in Christ, clothed in Christ's own obedience. This is what we learned in Sunday school this morning, kids, and we'll confess in just a moment. Our hope is our justification, that we are declared right before God through the work of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. That's our hope. Christ Jesus, the true human, who shows us what it looks like to live a truly human life in contrast to all the inhumanity that Amos describes. And then as we're justified, as we learned this morning in Sunday School Kids, as we're justified, we're also progressively sanctified. We're taught to live in a human manner, to live a Christ-like life. And so Amos calls out these attitudes, these ways of treating people inhumanely, of mistreating others. And we see the gross fruit that these attitudes can ultimately bear. And yet Amos also points us to our true hope, what a truly human and obedient and faithful life looks like. Which way shall we turn this morning? Let us pray.